Well, today is an exciting day. For some of you, okay. Yeah, some of you had to actually brush your teeth this morning, so. Um, uh, now, I want to begin, though, talking about something the opposite of exciting, and that is, if you've ever had, you can relate to this, a bad boss or a manager. Uh, those guys and girls are not the most exciting people to be around. Uh, when I, years ago, before we planted New City Church, I worked at Verizon for a couple of years in one of the retail stores, and basically how it works is you have like a, a general, a store manager, then you have like three or four assistant managers, and there's like 20 of us, you know, running around doing whatever we got to do. And the first year I was there, I never liked the job, but you have a really good time with uh, coworkers. Many of them I'm still in contact with to today. And about a year into it, our store manager was promoted to somewhere else in Verizon because our store did really well, and we had a new manager comes in. And, you know, it's always difficult when you're new and everyone kind of likes each other and that sort of thing, but this guy was awful. Um, he came in the first day before he started, he met everyone, which was fine. And then like the next day there was, we were in the shopping center in Briar Creek. If you're familiar with, there's a Verizon and like other side of the, sh there's like a Dairy Queen, like, like you can see like from the window and somebody went over to the Dairy Queen for the break for on their break. And the man, our manager was just there watching the store, which is fine. But now we all know that he's over there. He never came by to say hello to us. So that was kind of weird. Uh, he never talked to you unless he was mad at you or some, about something or he wanted you to fix something. And in fact, uh, my favorite story of this is I, in the two-ish years that I was there, called out sick one, one time for one day. Only once, one day. And I called the night before uh, because according to like the employee handbook stuff, you're supposed to call out at least an hour before your shift. But every other Friday, we had like a 8.30 meeting that everyone had to go to. And I didn't want to like set an alarm at 7.30 to call them. So I said, hey, I'm really not feeling good. I'm probably not going to be there tomorrow. I just want to let you know. So I don't come in. Next Saturday, I come in. I still felt, sound terrible. I, one of my assistant managers was like, you, you probably should go home. And I was like, yeah, it's whatever. It's fine. It's pre-COVID. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> And uh, I go on the computer, and I notice to make sure, you know, my, my stuff was tracked for yesterday, and he took a vacation day from me. Not, right? This joker took a vacation. And I was like, he took a vacation. My other manager's like, I, I don't know. You should talk to him. Good luck. So I go into his office, and I said, hey, uh, I noticed that you, you know, I was sick yesterday. I noticed that you took a vacation day from me. And he said, yep. And I said, well, you know, and I sounded terrible. Like, you could tell I wasn't lying. And I was like, well, I was sick. And he said, oh, okay, well, I just found it interesting that you decided to call me the night before to tell me that you weren't going to come in the next day. And I was like, well, I called you because I didn't want to set an alarm, and, you know, I just, I didn't feel good. And he's like, okay, I just think that's strange. And so I said, uh, can you change it to a sick day? And he said, oh, how did, I don't even remember. I said, that's strange, and I asked him to change it to a sick day, and he's like, I mean, I can. And I asked him, I said, do you think I'm lying to you? And he said, I don't know. It was awful. It was awful. Eventually, he did change it to a sick day, but this is the type of guy. And the thing is, if, you, if you've had a bad boss or a manager too, oftentimes it's maybe their leadership ability isn't great, but that's not what makes them bad. It's the fact that they're mean, that they don't want to be around you, you don't want to be around them. They're awful. Like how they live, how they interact with you and others uh, makes a significant negative impact on your life and your time with them. And today, as we begin our book in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see Paul, uh, who is writing uh, to a bunch of believers in Thessalonica, will share about that in a second, talking about basically this idea that your relationship with Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, is not just between you and God. 
It's not just like I'm saved, so I'm good, but rather how we live is either a positive impact in our community or a negative impact on our community, and it makes a difference. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, if you don't, there's a black one around you. I think it's page 1046 in there. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, some context, some interesting things about this book in 1 Thessalonians. It's kind of hard to find. So if you need to use your whatever it's called at the beginning of your Bible to find the page number, it's in the middle of the New Testament. Uh, it is was written about 50 AD by this guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is likely the earliest uh, book that actually ended up making it into the New Testament. Um, this is maybe 15 to 17 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, clearly, Paul had written other letters, but this was the first one, uh, that, the oldest one that we have in the New Testament. It is composed by Paul, as we'll see with a guy named Silvanus and Timothy. Uh, you can actually read about Paul's first encounter to Thessalonica in the book of Acts in chapter 17. Basically, what happened is Paul and some of his companions came into Thessalonica, which is in modern-day uh, Greece uh, today. It's on the port of the Mediterranean Sea, and they started telling people about Jesus. They started telling people that you did not have to be Jewish, that you could be a Gentile and non-Jew and still come into the family of God, and so certain religious leaders didn't like that. They incited a bunch of ri a riot so that they had to be kicked out of the city. And so a little bit later on, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how everything's going. Timothy comes back to Paul, and this is Paul's uh, response to what's going on there and answering some of their questions. Uh, again, it's in modern-day Greece. Uh, Thessalonica was a very big city. It was the, the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. So in that area of the world, there's a lot of people coming and going. There's a large harbor and a lot of commerce there. And so that's a little bit behind 1 Thessalonians. We'll dive in. Chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So again, Paul, from his co-workers to the church, to the believers in Thessalonica, and here's how he begins his letter. He says, we, thank God for, we, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here is grateful for their endurance of the Thessalonian believers in their midst of persecution and their doubts and their questions, which he will address throughout the letter. They're still pursuing God. Now, interestingly, faith, hope, and love, as he mentions these words here, is a common triad that is supposed to mark believers that we see throughout the New Testament. Interestingly, here, he doesn't do the typical faith, hope, and love. He does faith, love, and he ends with hope. And as we're going to see, he's emphasizing this idea of hope in Jesus and ultimately his return. So we're talking Talk about that in a couple of weeks, so that will be fun. Uh, and so, but he's saying, I mean, you have hope and have endurance, and this is what gets you through. Because what we're going to see is that the, the, the danger that the Thessalonians are facing is that they are losing hope in Christ. They have fellow believers that are dying, and so they're not sure what's happening to them. And so he's encouraging to remain hopeful. Uh, and of course, they're also facing some false teaching, some people saying, no, uh, Jesus is not enough. You have to do X, Y, and Z, and actually in order to be part of the people of God. And so again, he wants their hope to lead them to endurance. And hope is a powerful thing. I mean, there's probably things in your life that you endured because you, you had hope that if you endured it, 
a good outcome would come, right? That's why you endured, because you were hopeful for a positive outcome. Uh, there are times in my life that this has happened. Uh, one of the best times that this has happened uh, was when I proposed to Christina. Um, I am not a very romantic guy, uh, and I think part of that is because my proposal was awesome, and so it took all of my juices and just went there. Um, but I killed that thing. Let me just tell you what. And part of that, let me just, well, let me tell you about it since we're on the subject. Uh, part of that was, as you know, Christina dumped me twice. Um, everybody makes mistakes, and that's fine. She was dumped me twice. Um, and so it, her birthday's in January. And so one year in college, I got her a journal. And she was like, oh, great. You know, I like journals. And I said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this journal back, and I'm going to write in this. And next year for your birthday, I'm going to give you a fully written journal. This is good, right? Well, you know, what happens is, you know, later that summer, she dumps me. This is the second time, mind you. And guess what this brother did? He kept writing. I kept writing. Come on, somebody. I kept writing. I kept writing. And I kept writing. And we got back together a few months later, and it was awesome. And part of my proposal is on the night that I proposed her, her birthday's in January. I proposed a couple weeks before her birthday, but it was in January. Uh, the last entrance in that journal was me proposing to Christina. Come on, right? Now, now that might have been the it, that might have been the pinnacle, but you know, at least it was good. At least it was good, right? But what happened was I had hope that something was going to be okay, and so I endured an unfortunate time to get a result that actually was good. And what, G, what Paul is emphasizing here is the reality that Jesus is the one who gives us the hope to endure. Jesus gives us hope in it to endure. And so as these Christians are facing the difficulties of life that you and I often face, we need to remember that it cannot be self-will. It cannot be your job or your relationships or your kids or your income level or your health that gets you through the day. You can't just believe in yourself because that's not going to get you anywhere when the difficulties of life strike you, when struggles and temptations uh, and tragedy come your way. You've got to have something to get you to endure. And what, uh, what Paul is going to write about here is that Jesus loves you. He chose you, that this is not the end, and that if you are in God's kingdom, if you are a follower of God, if you are a child of God, you are loved by God, you are accepted by God, and one day you will enter into his kingdom, that this is not all that there is. And so he's encouraging them to have hope in the midst of their difficulties because Jesus has done for them what they could never do for themselves. It cannot just be self-will. We actually have to put our hope in something that can actually give us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves to get us through when times are difficult. And so he's going to explain why here, why Jesus actually gives us this hope to endure when he says this, starting in verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he has done, did not come to you in word only, and this is important, they didn't just talk about it, but also in power, in the, whole, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. See, what's happening here, and here's why he's giving them the hope to continue to endure, is that the believers, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can endure because you have been chosen by God. Now, I know there's some tension here, and I, I'm, I'm comfortable living in the tension of Scripture, this idea of God chooses us, and so what does that actually mean? But what you see throughout Scripture is that God continuously chooses people to draw them to himself, right? I mean, there's, the list is endless. I'll give you a couple of big ones, right? In the beginning, you have Adam and Eve. God creates them. He places them in the garden. He chooses them uh, to be the head of the human race. Uh, later on, after their sin and their falling short and the sin that enters into the world, God raises up Abraham. He chooses 
chooses Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you, you and your descendants into a great nation. Abraham didn't do anything. God just chose him. Uh, later you have Moses. We were in Exodus for a while. He, he takes the Israelites out of Egypt. God chooses uh, Moses. Uh, God chooses the nation of Israel. There is nothing special in and of themselves. But God said, I'm going to make you into a nation of which the Savior of the world will come. Uh, God chose their first king, Saul. He chose King David. Uh, God chose Mary, the mother of Jesus. When Jesus was here, Jesus chose his disciples. Right? There wasn't like a list lining up where Jesus comes to them and he, and he picks them. He co- encourages them to follow them. And even Paul himself, if you're familiar with his story, that you can read in the book of Acts. This guy was on the, on the track to be a high-ranking uh, religious Pharisee official. He would have been wealthy. Uh, he would have had high status in the community. And he gives all of that away because of a supernatural encounter he has in Jesus. And so he knows that God chose him. And so what we see throughout Scripture is that God moves and then we respond. Now, again, this is uh, against the kind of the spirit of the age that says we choose, we make our own decisions, we do whatever we want. What God says is, no, I actually choose you. I'm the one that has chosen to give you grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. I am the one who does the work, and you have to respond. What this means, and the good news of this, however, is that your value is not determined by you and what you do. Right? Your value is determined by God who chose to give himself, uh, make us into his image, and offer a way for grace, forgiveness, and mercy for us. Right? God chooses to reveal himself in Jesus. He chooses to give us the grace that we could not earn. And then, and then they answer, to, and then we respond. And so I just want to say, uh, if you are here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, are you resisting God's grace? Are you resisting the fact that God loves you, cares for you, died for you, and is inviting you in today in the midst of your doubts and questions before you get your life together? Are you resisting this grace? Because what we see all throughout Scripture and what Paul is getting at here is that God's grace is given and not earned. It's given because he chooses to give it. And this is why we endure with hope. We endure with hope because we actually know the ending, that God has chosen us. It's not a guessing game if you're in Christ, whether or not you will be accepted into his kingdom. I mean, can you imagine uh, going through life and not being sure some of the things that you have to do that you don't like, actually being sure of the result? Like, so for example, like imagine going through school and they're saying, you got to pass, you got to do all these things. And if you pass and get all your credits and everything, we may or may not give you a degree. Like, we don't know. It depends on how the dean is feeling that day when you decide to graduate, right? So you have to do all the work. But if you do all the work, it's not actually guaranteed that you get it, right? Would you actually endure to do it? I don't know. Probably not, because you're not actually guaranteed to endure through the hard things that school can bring, right? Or if maybe if, you, if you're training for a new job, you know, sometimes the onboarding process isn't fun or even looking for a job isn't fun, but you do it, right, hopefully, so that you can get a job. Right? Or for example, like if you're hungry and you want to be guaranteed to have a good meal, you go to Jersey Mike's and you get a number six on wheat with a Mountain Dew on the side. Or at least you bless your pastor with it, right? Why? Because you know it's going to be good. Right? If you're not sure it's going to be good, then you're like, eh, is it worth my time? I don't know. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, many people choose to be a Duke fan, a Duke basketball fan, right? Because you know every year you make the NCAA tournament, so it's fun. <laughs> Most years. <laughs> Most years, we're still, we're still recovering from that, right? But that's why we endure. We endure because we know. So listen to me this morning. If you're a follower of Christ, you are not hoping in Jesus and hoping it all works out, 
right? You are hoping because God chose you and you, and he's bringing you into his kingdom. That if you have received the grace and mercy of God, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done through the power and work of Jesus and the spirit to bring you to himself, you know that you are loved and cared for and redeemed. We don't follow God wondering if this is going to work out. We know it's going to work out. And so we endure even in the difficult times because of what Christ has done for us. And I think all of us would agree that there's nothing quite as powerful or even quite as tragic as seeing people in our life who, um, <clears throat> who, who say they have this hope and say that they love God, and then you find out later that their life was nothing like they said it was. Or on the converse side, they say they love God, they say they have, they have hope, and then you find out that actually, uh, that, that actually their life was even more than what it says that, 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 that they, the, the way that they lived out. You find out things after the fact, and you're actually more encouraged. And this is kind of what Paul is getting at here. That the way that you and I live impacts the people around us. And in fact, this is what he says in verse 7. I'm going to start in verse 4, and then we'll keep going through verse 7. He says this again. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. So we know how, know how this ends. And then he says this, which I think is interesting. He says, you know how we lived among you for your benefit. So he's talking about when him and some of his companions were in Thessalonica. He says, you know how we lived for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. What he's saying here is that Paul, and he's going to talk about this more in chapter 2, that Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus came with good motives. Uh, in, the, in ancient Rome, and really a lot of the ancient world, uh, you would have people like religious preachers and people who would go into towns and cities for financial gain, uh, try to get sexual favors to deceive people. And he's saying, that is not why we came to you. We came not trying to gain anything from you, but to simply share with you the love that God has bestowed. And so he's arguing to them that the evidence of what they, what they taught them was is true because of two things. One, the power of the Spirit, right? Many people were coming to see and experience Jesus and his grace. And two, how they lived, how Paul and his companions lived, give, give uh, credence to their message. And now how the Thessalonians are living in the midst of persecutions and the difficulties of living in a Roman empire, when you say you're not going to bow down to the Roman king, right? Their actions have gone out and have showed and have demonstrated that what they believe is actually true, right? It, how they lived mattered. And in fact, one of my desires for New City Church is that we would be a people who pursue Jesus and holiness. That we don't just say, I want to follow God. I want to know Jesus. I want to have a personal, individual relationship with God so that I'm good. But that we would, we would pursue our relationship with Jesus, but that we would also pursue holiness. Holiness just means to be set apart. Holiness just means that we actually live what we say we believe. That we would give each other grace when we fall short, that we would hold each other accountable when we needed that in love, we would not be afraid to have hard conversations, but that we would be marked by our love for God and how we live in our lives. That we would care for the people who are marginalized, that we would care and stand for righteousness and good and the love of our neighbor and our coworkers who are no annoy us and our classmates who never do their work, that we would be marked by Jesus and holiness, that Paul, that Jesus could say to, about us what Paul is saying here about the Thessalonians, right? And it leads to this question, right? If this is true, that how we live should match how, what we actually believe, the question I think is helpful to, that I ask myself, that it might be helpful for you to ask yourself is this, would I want others to follow Jesus the way that I am following Jesus? 
If you are a follower of Christ this morning, would you, how would you answer this question? Would you want others to follow Jesus? Maybe you have a friend who is far from God that you have been praying for, right? Would the rhythms and practices in your life be worth emulating? Would it help them actually grow closer to Jesus and who he is? Now, I want to say this. You might be thinking, well, obviously not because I've got a lot of issues. Well, that isn't true. Right? The fact that you are here today means that you have rhythms and practices worth emulating. I, I don't say this because it might sound self-serving, because I, I, I really don't care about that part, but I think one of the best things you can do is consistently join and attend your local church, to have a weekly rhythm of encouraging one another, of loving one another, of worshiping one another, of building friendships and relationships with one another. So there are things in your life that are worth emulating, but if you're honest, are there things in your life where you know, man, maybe this isn't the best? Right? Would I want others to follow Jesus the way I am following Jesus? And like I was saying earlier, there's nothing quite as powerful as realizing that somebody that you respected followed Jesus even better than you thought, or someone that you respected and you find out after the fact they were not at all who they said that they were. Right? So for an example for me, I'm going to share a couple of these stories, and I'm going to make a point here. For for, uh, I'm going to make a point, so, so stick with me as I share this with you. Uh, you know, but many of you know that my dad died when I was uh, 19 years old. Uh, and so that was about 12, yeah, 12 summers ago now. And so two years ago, on his 10th anniversary, we kind of had a family dinner together um, and, you know, just to commemorate and just talk and to share stories. And so one of the things that I did was I uh, reached out to a lot of friends of my dad and asked, hey, could you share some stories? We were going to, you know, surprise my mom with it and just, you know, tell her some things that people said. And so hear all of these stories. And of course, after someone passes away, I get it. Like we like to be positive about them. But I hear story after story of my dad, who I respected, who I knew loved God and loved his wife and loved his kids, was actually the man that he claimed to be. And so I just want to read a couple of you and then I'll make a point. So here's some of the stories that people shared. And you'll probably see a common theme here. Uh, One person said, I love that Roger was a note writer. It was always encouraging to me when I'd come come to it uh, to work and find a quick but thoughtful note written on a post-it note to me saying, great job on getting all the giving statements uh, printed, folded, stuffed, and mailed out. Or I really appreciate all you do for the 101, 201, 301, and 401 classes. Those little notes meant so much to me. Another person said, uh, Roger's ability to encourage others was very strong. Staff from the early days of the church that I grew up at remembered getting encouraging sticky notes attached to their paychecks because Roger signed the checks as the treasurer for the church. So he sent encouraging notes. Personally, he was the most consistent and most effective encourager in my life, and I felt that loss a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, Another person said uh, camping. He was sharing stories about my dad. He was a good friend of his. He said, uh, the church that I grew up in, we would do these like camping things, you know, middle school and elementary school all the time. And he said, uh, going for his sons, even if he didn't enjoy it. I tallied the men who participated in our boys' camping trips, and Roger was the most faithful. Debbie said to me one time, you do know Roger dislikes camping. (laughs) He said I didn't. Um, He only goes to spend time with the men. Roger was faithful. Or here's the last one. Uh, Somebody said, I'll never forget one day, Debbie and I were meeting in her office. She picked up the phone to make a call, and she exclaimed, oh, with a huge grin on her face, Roger had left a tiny yellow Post-it note stuck under the handset that simply said, I love you. Now, this is worth emulating. Now, I want to compare that to my manager at Verizon. I'll just be honest. Like, (laughs) If my manager at Verizon had said to me one day, Dylan, you know I'm a follower of Jesus, you know how discouraged that would have been to me? 
Now, I know that he wasn't because we only had one conversation that wasn't weird and awkward. He was trying to be nice, so it was kind of awkward. And I was telling him about, you know, my future plans. And so we talked about faith a little bit, and he told me he wasn't. But if he said that he was, that would be bad. It would, and, and I don't say this as a, as a judgment or a condemnation because, listen, all of us fall short. But he, here is a man who clearly didn't care about living the principles of Christ, which is fine. He's not a Christian. I'm not expecting him to. But if he said that he was, that would be a problem. Like, that would be a problem. And so again, it's not about being perfect. It's about having it all together. But do I have rhythms and practices in my life so that people can look at me and say, yes, that person doesn't have it all together, but they love Jesus and they are worth emulating? Do I have things in my life that would allow Paul to write a letter to us, the church at New City, the way he's encouraging them, that our actions actually match our belief and that we love people, even hard people, because Christ loved us. Oh, and by the way, you are a hard person for Christ to love, right? And so am I. And yet he gladly does it in the midst of our falling short and our sin and the times that we reject him. And so I'll continue reading here the last part of 1 Thessalonians in verse 8. Here's what Paul says. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which is the region that they were in, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, what happened here was the Thessalonians' actions caused the gospel to spread. Not their correct intellectual belief, not them saying the right things. It was their lives that caused the gospel to spread in this area. Now, again, this is a letter, and so there's a lot of things that we don't know because Paul's responding to certain questions and things that are going on, and we don't live in that day. And so when he says uh, that the message of God has gone out, uh, we don't exactly know how, what exactly way he's talking about. It could be um, that the, the news of their faith was reaching other Christians in the surrounding areas. Uh, it could be because Thessalonica was, Thessalonica was such a high-trafficked place uh, that a lot of people came in and came out and, and came in contact with these particular, these peculiar Christians. And so there was something about them that was spreading, but regardless how they lived was causing Jesus's name to spread as people traveled from city to city, sharing about these Christians in Thessalonica. See what's happening here again, is that their faith in Jesus and his return, which we'll talk about in a couple of chapters, caused them to live differently. That they experienced God's grace, that they had experienced God's love, and it changed how they lived. Uh, this, to me, I think is a great example of what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. The last thing I'll read, Hebrews chapter 12, it's a well-known passage. You may be familiar with it. Hebrews 11 is all about uh, people who had followed God and were faithful. And even if life didn't go the way that they would want in this life, they were, they were faithful. And then he says this in Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, or people who had honored God in their life in the past, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, we endure by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who chose to bring us into his kingdom. Not on ourself, not on our effort, not on our self-will and how good or bad of a person, we, but fixing our eyes on Jesus who chose to bring you, to bring me into his 
kingdom, right? This is the good news of the gospel. The gospel, again, is that God chose, that Jesus chose to come, that God chose to take the form of a man, live a perfect life that you and I could not live, die the death that you and I deserve, and defeated death in his resurrection, so that anybody and everybody who trusts and believe in the name of Jesus, not in of themselves, can experience the grace and mercy of God. The gospel is that God chose to make a way for you, and so we endure, not as a people without hope, but as a people when life is hard and difficult and even in the good times, knowing that this is not all that there is, that God's kingdom is coming, that Jesus will return one day, that he will re-inaugurate his kingdom in all of creation. It will be renewed in all of us who follow Jesus in the midst of our doubts and our falling shorts and our stumblings are welcomed into his kingdom, not because of us, because of him. And so we take the good news of this and it impacts how we live. In fact, I would probably put it, well, I would put it this way because I wrote the sermon. I would put it this way. That how we live reflects our assurance in God's love. How we live to others uh, reflects how assured we are in God's love, right? And in the times where we fall short, uh, that we might be manipulative, that we might be unforgiving, or the times that we are forgetting all that God has done for us. The times that we have to pay people back, or the times that we got to make sure that people respect us, we forget that if you're in Christ, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress, Right? God chose to love us, and so we respond by loving him and loving others so that as many people as possible can know Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And when we are assured of this hope that we have, it changes how we live and how we interact and how we forgive one another. Right? When we are sure, when we are experiencing God's grace, when we, are, when we have a weekly practices and rhythms in our lives and in our days to, to turn our eyes to Jesus— we are much more likely to be loving and forgiving and spirit-filled in the times that we aren't. And so what do we do? We respond to God in confession. We are honest about the times that we fall short. We ask God through the power of his spirit to empower us to love people the way he has loved us. And then we continue to honor him with our life. And so as I close, I want to invite the band up on the stage. And we're going to do, take a minute to do what we do every week and take a time of confession. Uh, this is a time where we get to be honest with God. Confession is just that, saying, God, I've fallen short. Would you give me your grace? That's what confession is. And why do we do it? Because, anyone who re- that God, because God always responds to repentance with grace. And so no matter what you walked in here this, with, this morning, that you don't have to walk out wondering if God loves you or if he cares for you, that we get to take a time privately to go to, to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry for I, where I've fallen short. Would you give me the grace that I do not deserve? Would you uh, empower me? Would you give me your presence and your love so that I can be uh, reinvigorated, so that I can remember who you are, so that I can be a person that loves others the way that you have loved me? And so what we'll invite you to do here in a second uh, is to uh, take a second and go before the Lord in prayer. Uh, And I would encourage you during this time of confession to maybe not just confess where you have fallen short, um, but also confess the times where if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, where your um, life did not match up what you actually believed right? Because that's true for all of us. It's true of us to me. God, would you give us grace? Would you give us your mercy? And then I'll close us with prayer, and then we'll sing to God. So would you go to God in a time of confession?